the focus of God's people in this day and in this time ought to be on recognizing and confessing and seeking to repent by God's grace of our sin. Uh, we have been in somewhat of tumultuous times, and, and often, I think, as is the case, uh, we're tempted to look outside to the world uh, and, and heap up a great deal of condemnation and, and blame all of the problems that we're going through on, on the world. Uh, but, but I think, rather than do that, uh, our focus ought to be on looking to see what God is doing in our own hearts, in our own lives, and in our own church. What sin is he exposing? What is he working to, to rid us of as his people? I, I draw this uh, from the way God dealt with his people in, Old Testament, in the Old Testament period, the, the Israel, uh, where so often he brought judgment on them because of their sin. His, his focus seemed to be on his own people and not as much on the nations around them, though judgment did come upon them uh, as well. And, and I would just stop here and make a plug for our Sunday evening services last week. I know the bulletin starts, it says it starts today, uh, but that was a misprint. It started last week, unless Jeffrey was kind of trying to say that, you know, it didn't really get started last week, so maybe this week it'll start. But uh, Jared is going to be preaching tonight, and, and I'm sure it will start tonight. Um, but in, in the prophets, you're going to see God directing his words of judgment to his own people. And I take this as well, not only from the Old Testament prophets, but also from Peter, uh, which has been often in my mind. First Peter 4.16 says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Judgment is beginning, and it's beginning not with the world, it's beginning with you and I, with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. And so I think what Peter is saying there uh, is that when we go through suffering, whether that's just suffering in general or whether it's particularly persecution of, of Christians, when we go through that as Christians in this life, it is the disciplinary judgment of God upon his people in order to purify and sanctify them. So when we're going through pandemics and political unrest and social unrest and and economic unrest. We, we don't shake our fists at the world and say, this is all on the world. God is bringing judgment on them. No, no, no. Peter says what God is doing is right now he's purifying his church. And so we need to be thinking about what is God seeking to expose in our heart and in our lives and in, in the church. From this truth, and I take a general principle that whenever we are experiencing distress, suffering, persecution, we should be less focused on the world and we should instead quickly evaluate our lives to see what God is doing. The, the, God will judge the world. We don't have to worry about the world being judged. God is going to bring judgment on the world, but that's God's prerogative and not ours. Our prerogative is to take care of our own sin. Right? God is going to judge the world. Hebrews 4.13 says that on the judgment day, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes 
of him to whom we must give an account. God is going to judge the world and everything's going to be seen as it is. There will be no spin. There will be no fake news. There will be no uh, obfuscating. There will be no blaming. What about the other side? Everything will be justly dealt with when God uh, brings us into his judgment, when Christ returns. That's not our prerogative. Our prerogative is to say, what is God doing in my life? And I start this morning with that introduction because I think perhaps there is no sin so prevalent among Christians in our context than a love of money that manifests itself in materialistic, uh, a materialistic view of life. I, I am certain that at least in part, uh, part of the reason that maybe we're going through the, the tumultuous times that we're going through right now is that God is seeking to speak to His people and reveal to them the sin of materialism, their, their sin of covetousness, their sin of loving money. Perhaps no sin so characterizes us as Christians in this context as our love of money and material goods. If it is true that God uses trials to expose our sin, then perhaps God is using our present distress to purify us from putting our hope in this world. I pray this morning that as we look at this text, the Spirit of God will bring conviction and that we might be led to repent and turn our hearts once more to the Lord. Let's look at this text then this morning. Uh, What you're going to see is a simple text. There are two commands. Uh, that we're going to look at, mainly focusing most of our time on this first command. Uh, But there are two commands, and then there's a promise that is given to undergird and and to encourage our obedience to these commands. And and then there's finally a, a resolve that we are to take up because of that. So two commands, a promise, and then a resolve. So the first command is this, to not love money, to keep your life free from the love of money. This command obviously has its foundations all the way back in the law of God. Very early in the storyline of the Bible, God gave his law as as a basic standard of of morality and of righteousness. And in that law, he he included a prohibition uh, against coveting or covetousness, that is desiring that which belongs to another. It's It's not just desiring, but sort of an inordinate desire of things that belong to other people. You see, God understood right from the start when when man uh, sin entered into the world and into the heart of man, God understood that man would have a natural propensity toward desiring things that did not belong to him. This sin has exposed itself again and again throughout the storyline of the Bible and throughout human history, has it not? When we go to the history of Israel and the storyline of Scripture, we see God through His prophets, again, in the Old Testament, repeatedly condemning their injustice. When you go to the Old Testament prophets, God, of course, He condemns their idolatry. Yes, God God condemns their paganism. He condemns their sexual immorality. But right up there with those things, if you'll read through the prophets, you'll see these repeated uh, words of judgment because they have been unjust because they have treated sojourners and and the poor with contempt and have not brought about justice for them. And we might ask ourselves then, what is the source 
of that sin. Why that injustice? Well, because there were people who were so desiring to have more and more and more that they were willing to oppress their brothers and sisters, the people of their own nation, in order to get it. And as we think more broadly throughout the history of the world, <clears throat> many, if not most, of the great atrocities that have been committed have occurred because people have an insatiable desire for more. It's, it's unbelievable, but, but, but at the root of so many of the wars that have been fought and the people who have been killed and the families who have been split apart, most of that, or, or oftentimes, that comes back to a desire within humanity to possess more and more and more, or to possess what belongs to another. This command, though, in our text, goes deeper than a mere prohibition, as the commandment, the tenth commandment is, do not covet. There, there's more than just a mere prohibition in, in our text. Uh, it, it, it commands us here, it, it says, keep your life free from the love of money. Now, I think what is happening here is that the author of Hebrews is drawing on the teaching of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was uh, the, the foremost, the supreme interpreter and explainer of the Old Testament law. And Jesus taught some things that were very important for us to understand uh, about sin and, and about our own hearts and about uh, how we are motivated uh, to, to obedience. There were two principles in particular that Jesus taught that are especially helpful in shaping this command, that, that we would keep our life free from the love of money. The first thing is what Jesus taught is that sin, including coveting, comes from within the heart. So you could see this in different places, but Mark chapter 7, verse number 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. The heart here that Jesus speaks of is, is the innermost part of our being. It's, it's who we truly are at, at our essence or at our, our core. So when Jesus says that sins like coveting come from within, he means to indicate to us that our sin is not accidental to who we are. But when we sin, we, we are exposing our true nature. And, and this is completely opposite. I know you've heard me say it many times, but it's completely opposite to the way the world thinks. The world thinks, I've got this core of who I am, the essence of who I am, that is good. I have a good heart, but, but sometimes I mess up. Sometimes I sin and act in, in wrong ways. But Jesus flips that upside down and he says, no, no, no. The problem is that at the core, you are sinful in your heart. And because you're sinful in your heart, you do sinful things. Sin has corrupted and disordered our desires and our affections and our thinking and our reasoning and our will. So that there always seems to be a sin underneath the sin. When, when we covet, something has gone wrong within our heart that produces that sinful behavior. And this leads to the second crucial principle that Jesus taught, 
And that is this, that love is the source of our behavior. We do what we do because we love what we love. If you love God, uh, then you, it will lead you to submit to him and to be obedient to him. If you love anything else in a primary, central sort of way, it will lead you to sin and ultimately will lead you to destruction that sin brings. So if I love anything else chiefly or primarily, it will always lead to God. I can even love good things. But if I love them in the place of God, in a chief or in a primary way, it will lead me to sin every time. And that's why Jesus said that the greatest commandment would, would be that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind. And he goes on to say in that passage, on that commandment and the commandment to love your neighbor as you love yourself, on those two commandments, he says, depend all of the law. In other words, what is he saying there when it depends on those? It, it really literally means it hangs on those. Well, what it means is if you get this right, everything else will flow from it. And if you get this wrong, nothing else is going to change, right? If you have love for God as the central love in your heart, as the controlling love of your heart and life within you, if you have that love, it will lead to obedience and the rest of the law, obedience will come. But if you do not love God as you ought, then you will be led to all manner of sin. And this is why Jesus taught that no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And in that context, Jesus was actually talking about money, which fits right in where we're at. He says you cannot love God and money in a central kind of way. At the core of your being, you, you cannot have love for material things as the chief controlling love within your heart and love for God. The two things don't, they, they don't go together like oil and water. You either have one or the other. If you love material things, you will live and serve that master. If you love the Lord, you will live for and serve him as your master. You cannot serve both. Well, this text then that we're looking at in Hebrews goes to the source of our coveting. Coveting comes from a love for money. We desire what others have and we desire more and more of it in an inordinate way when we do not love God and when we instead love material things. Sin, the sin underneath the sin, then is love of money. It's a disordering of our affections. I remove God from His primary place in my heart and I place or insert the love of money and material possessions in his place. And then we see what love is, right? What, whatever you love is what you value. It's what you long for. It's what you want. It's what gives you a sense of worth. It's, it's where you find your identity. It's, it's what, gives what I give my time and attention to getting. And it's what I look to for security in this life. God ought to be all of those things. He ought to be the one we value and long and desire. He ought to be the one from whom we gain our sense of identity. He ought to be the one for whom or from whom we look security. But so often, Christians, we don't look to God because we love money. And we're looking to material things. We're looking to possessions to provide all of that for us. And this is the sin that the writer warns against. Well, you say, well, what's a big deal if 
if I don't love God supremely? Why, why is that such an important thing? Well, first and foremost, it's a problem because God is worthy of your love. He's your creator and, and he's worthy of your devotion. He's worthy of your affection. He is the one who is truly good. And, and so you ought to love him. When we love other things, we're worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. But secondly, when we do not love God supremely, it always leads to sin and corruption, and it ultimately leads to destruction. So, so it seems small. It seems insignificant. I, I don't love God maybe as much as I should, or maybe I've let other things in my heart take the place of God in my ultimate love and affection. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But when that happens, it always leads to sin and corruption, and that sin and corruption always leads to destruction. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 9. He says, but those who desire to be rich... There's that desire, there's that love, that, that inner affection. Those who desire to be rich, they've taken the desire to, to be, have wealth and to have great material possessions, and they've taken that into the core of their being, into their heart. Those who desire to be rich, listen to what will happen to them, they will fall into temptation. In other words, a, a, a temptation that they will not overcome. They'll fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires. You see, this initial desire for riches leads to many other sinful desires. It produces all kinds of, of corruption. It, it, and so they are uh, fall into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Seems small. I don't love God. Maybe I love material possessions more than God, but it will lead you to temptation. It will lead you to fall into temptation. It will lead to corruption and to your ultimate ruin. It's a big deal. And that's the passage where Paul goes on to say, and we see in, in verse number 10, the, the same exact pattern, just sort of restated. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When you love money chiefly and supremely, when you love material things, it produces all kinds of evil in your heart. Now, he's not saying there, uh, the King James gives the idea maybe uh, that every instance of evil is caused by Money. Well, that's not the case. Sometimes we do evil things and we're not motivated by love, love of money. But what he's saying is that when you have the love of money, it produces all manner of evil. Every kind of evil that you could imagine is produced in the lives of men and women when they love money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Again, you cannot serve God and money. And so when you love money, it leads you away from, the, from faith in Christ. And then it leads to destruction because he says, and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. Love of money leads to temptation and leads to sin, leads to corruption, leads to destruction. This is a serious matter. The fact that he tells us here, to keep our life in Hebrews chapter 13, coming back to that text, the fact that he tells us to keep your life free from the love of money, I think indicates or implies that it so easily grows, doesn't it? It so easily grows within, it grows within my heart. In other words, what he's saying here, I think if, if we think about love of money, sort of like dandelions or weeds, 
You know, you pull them up and you think you've taken care of them. You come out the next day and there they are again, growing again and again. It's a constant battle throughout the summer, right? Uh, to, to get rid of them. And so it is with the love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money. Every single day, you've got to go out into your heart, the yard of your heart, and pull up the weeds and pull up the dandelions of love for money. It just is so easily cultivated. It's so natural for us as human beings to be given to that. And so we've got to keep our life free from the love of money. The second command is that we would be content with what we have. This is sort of the positive. The other was the negative. If you, if you remember in Ephesians, when we went through the book of Ephesians, we understand uh, that the work of sanctification is sort of a two-step process. There's two parts to it. Not only do we put off evil, not only do we put off sinful practices, but for that work of sanctification to be complete, we actually have to put something in its place. We put on righteousness. So Paul says in Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self. You remember that that analogy it's like taking off a coat put off your old nature put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and listen to this and it's corrupt through deceitful desires again you're getting down to that heart level it's it's desire it's love so put that off and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self you see it, the work of sanctification isn't complete just by putting off we must put on Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so in Ephesians, Paul gives a few examples. We are to put off falsehood. It's not enough just to stop lying and bearing false witness, but we are to put on the truth. Let every man speak truth with his neighbor. He talks to the thief. He says, let the thief no longer steal. That's the put off. But let him labor so that he may have something to share. There's, there's a generosity when the work of sanctification has its effect. So here, we're not commanded simply to put off the love of money, but to put something in its place, and that something that we are to put in its place is contentment. Contentment is the key to overcoming the love of money. I said it's a, a constant battle to be free from the love of money, and the way that we fight that battle is not simply by tr trying to kill off covetousness, but by seeking to grow and foster contentment. If I want to be at a place where I'm free from the love of money, then I must necessarily come to a place where I am content with what I have. We've got we've to make sure there's no room in our heart for that sin to come back and to, to grow once more. What, what is contentment, though? What is contentment? Well, I've, I've defined it this way, and others might define it differently, but I would say that contentment is the God-focused, dependent disposition of the heart which frees me from the enslavement of always wanting more and produces an inward peace with my current situation. It's a Godward focus. It's a trust and a dependence upon God, which frees me from the enslavement of always needing more. That's so enslaving, isn't it? Always being insecure. Always thinking, I wish I had that. Oh, maybe if I just get to this mark, then I would feel okay. Always just wanting something more. That's enslaving. But when we have a Godward focus, a, a Godward disposition that trusts in the Lord, we're freed from that enslavement. And it produces within us then an inward peace with my current situation and circumstances 
I think we see this really clearly put out by Paul in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says in Philippians 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And I think there he's talking about their financial support, uh, the Philippian church. He says, you were indeed uh, concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, because I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, listen to this, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You hear Paul says, I've, I've learned the secret to contentment. I, I've learned how to be content whether I've got plenty and, and more than enough or, or whether I really don't have enough. I, I've learned the secret to, to, to being content in that moment. And that secret is this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, that verse is not just about you being able to do supernatural things or being some big shot in sports or anything like that. The strengthening work of Christ is what enables God's people to face whatever dire circumstances they're in in their lives. And Paul's saying, I've learned that. First-hand experience. I, I've been destitute. I've been in prison. I've been beaten. I've had everything stripped away from me. And guess what happened? The strength that Christ gave me was enough in that moment. It, it was enough to provide for me, to care for me, to empower me, to face what was in front of me. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You see, what, what so often motivates, maybe it isn't the only motivator, but often what motivates and fuels our love of money is the belief that money or possessions will make us strong and secure. I can face the future if I've got enough in my bank account. I can face the future if I've got my retirement. I, I feel comfortable in life if I've got my house paid off and I've got this and I've got a new car that I can depend on. I can face all of those things. It will give me security. And Paul says, no, it won't. What will empower you to be content and, and, and to go with whatever circumstance arises in your life is the strength that Christ provides to his people. That's the secret to contentment. To look to Christ, that Godward focus, to depend on him. And depending on him, you'll be freed from thinking, I gotta have this and I gotta have that and a little bit more of this. That's always a lie anyway. That, that never comes about. Paul made another statement in Philippians just in that same passage, a few verses down in verse 19. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. There's that Godward focus again. I, I can just, when I have rest and trust in Christ's uh, strength for whatever comes, and I can also be confident that God will supply my needs. He won't supply uh, every wild fantasy that I have, every, every desire that I have. That's not what God is here to do, but he will supply all of your needs, and often he'll supply them in the moment of the need and not before then. He'll supply all of your needs. And this is what Jesus taught as well, isn't it? In, in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to put on or uh, what you're, what you're going to wear. He says the Gentiles seek after all of those things and he says your heavenly Father knows that you need them. You see the Godward focus? 
The Godward focus. Just think about God as your Father who provides for you. And when you do that, when you have that Godward focus, you'll be freed from always feeling the need to have more and more and more. You'll be freed from that slavery. If you are to be content with what you have, then you must rest and trust that God will provide your needs and that He will divinely strengthen you to face whatever situation He puts in front of you. And notice in our text, isn't this precisely what the writer of Hebrews does? I told you there were two commands and then there was a promise. Look at the promise that he gives to us in verse number five. Keep your life free from the love of money, command number one, and then the positive to that, be content with what you have. And then notice that little word for. In other words, he's saying, I'm grounding the commands that I've just given you in something that is true. And this is the truth that I'm giving you. It's a promise from God. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, the commands are rooted in a promise. You, You cannot obey these commands to not love money. You can't do it. You cannot obey the commands to not love money and be content with what you have unless you believe promises like this to be true. Donald Guthrie writes, the the writer's intention is to show that contentment should be based on the character of God, especially on His unfailing presence. And I would say more than just that it should be. It must be. If you're to have contentment in your life, it must be rooted in the character of God, especially His unfailing presence. God will be with you, people. God will take care of you. God will provide for you. And if that is true, then you don't need to love money. You don't need to chase it and pursue it and and, and have it as the, the goal in your life. You don't need to be anxious about those things. God will be with His people. The strength of Christ will be enough for His people, come what may. Calvin says this, it's certain that the source of covetousness is mistrust. The source of covetousness is mistrust. I covet because I don't trust God to give me what I think I might need. For whoever, whosoever, has this fixed in his heart that he will never be forsaken by the Lord will not be immoderately apprehensive about present things because he will depend on God's providence. God is with me. God is not going to forsake me. God will give me what what I need in the moment of my need. God will take care of me. And when I believe and trust in God's sovereignty and his providence in that way, his his ever-present help with me, I'm going to be delivered from covetousness. I'm going to be delivered from the love of money. He goes on to say, When therefore the apostle is seeking to cure us of the disease of covetousness, he wisely calls our attention to God's promise in which he testifies that he will ever be present with us. So Christian, this is the front line of the battle for you. The the battle lines have been drawn up this morning. It's a fight in our hearts that we've seen to love God and not love money and, and, and to look to the Lord as, as our provider. It's a fight to love God because He is the one who strengthens us to face any situation and will provide for us. And it's a fight to, to get rid of, to rid our hearts of the love of money because we believe it will provide security. So there it is. 
What are you looking to? Is money, are possessions going to make you happy and provide security? Or is it going to be the Lord? That's the battleground in your heart. And if you believe it's money, you're going to love money. If, if you love the Lord, you're going to be, you believe it's going to be the Lord who will provide for you and you'll be delivered from the love of money. And so there is a resolve here. He said there were two commands. There was a promise and then a resolve. He says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, verse number six, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. John Piper was helpful in just highlighting the fact that, that he says, so we can confidently say. We can say. Why does he say say there instead of we can confidently know or we can confidently believe? And, and the reason is because sometimes we have to preach to ourselves. In the moment when, when our hearts are drawn away to love money, in the moment when our hearts are being drawn away to look to material things to provide for us, to care for us, to give us security, to give us meaning and uh, fulfillment in life, in that moment, we need to declare to ourselves, we need to start preaching to ourselves, listen, I'm not going to fear. The Lord is my helper. He has promised to never leave me nor forsake me. So I'm not going to turn to the world. I'm not going to turn to material things to provide for me. We need to remind ourselves that God is with His people. That the, the strength that Christ provides is enough. That, that God will supply every one of our needs when the time comes in, in that moment of need. And we need to preach that to ourselves because as I said, it's so easy to, to just be drawn away again and again and again. This isn't a battle you just fight and win one time. This is a lifetime struggle for most of us as human beings is the struggle to look to material things to provide security. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And so we can say, I will not fear. What can man do to me? As we close this morning, I want us to come back to this notion of, of God's judgment. And, and God's judgment on our sin, I, I just want to ask the question, how low is he going to have to bring us to the point in which we will actually repent and turn from our sin, for, from the sin particularly of our love for material things? Here in our context in the West, in the United States, where things have been so abundant, this, this is a particular uh, struggle and a particular temptation I think for us how much is God going to have to do before God's people will begin to recognize this sin and repent of it is God going to have to strip away everything before we learn the secret to contentment we, we have been experiencing God's judgment upon his people of that there is no doubt should we not respond with brokenness and repentance over our sin particularly the sin of materialism Listen, refusing to repent and just hardening your heart, listening and hearing and, and yet not relinquishing your grip on, the, on sin is the mark of unbelievers. Again, we look to unbelieving Israel in the Old Testament. God would bring judgment. They just persist in their sin. I, I was recently reading at the end of the year Revelation uh, through my Bible reading and just struck by how God here, uh, the book of Revelation is all about God pouring out his judgment, his final judgment, these bowls and vials and, and, and so forth of, of judgment. And yet 
it says a couple times in the book of Revelation, despite all of this, they would not repent. But listen, we as God's people, we should be different. That's talking about the world. We should be quick to respond. We should be sensitive to the convicting work of the Spirit. I was reminded also this morning of of Christ's call to His church to repent in the book of Revelation. Not to the world, but to His church in the seven letters that were given. In Revelation 2.16, He says, Therefore repent, after He hath laid out their sin, repent, if not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And in chapter 3, he says something similar. Repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Again, God there is not speaking to the world. He's speaking to His people. And I believe He's speaking to us this morning through His Word and and through His providence in the world. He's telling us, repent of your sin. This is a problem. And if we do not repent, perhaps God is going to come in even greater judgment. May may we as His new covenant people be quick and responsive, responsive to His work of discipline in our life. I'm afraid that if we refuse, He will come in yet even greater judgment. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning and we pray that You would grant us repentance. God, our hearts are so hardened. We so love the world, uh, God, that, that it's only by a work of your grace that that can be undone. God, I pray that this morning, perhaps your word uh, being at, at work through your spirit would chip away at, at our hard-hearted sinfulness. God, would you lead many people this morning to, to relinquish their love for material things, to turn from those things and to seek fulfillment and contentment in you, would, would, would you lead many people to learn, uh, to learn the lesson that Paul learned, the secret of contentment, to, to rest in the strength that Christ gives? God, this is a work of your grace. I can't do it. We cannot affect that on our own. We pray that you would do it this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.